Hello and welcome to Speaking Startup, Missouri Business Alert's podcast covering the news and issues important to Missouri entrepreneurs. I'm Elliot Bowman and I'm joined by Suman Naishadam. Hey everyone. And Joe Cease. How's it going, Elliot? For two weekends every April, some of the world's most beautiful and talented people converge in Southern California for the Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival, or just Coachella. The biggest stars in the music industry take the stage for an event that really has become a cultural touchstone. But we know not every music festival is as idyllic as Coachella. Firefest made international headlines for promoting a festival on a secluded tropical island. But the organizers didn't have the basic infrastructure any event needs to operate, including food, water, housing, transportation, and even artists willing to perform. We've all heard of Firefest, but what about Lufest? Its demise was nowhere near as dramatic, but after eight years, the St. Louis Music Festival was canceled suddenly last year, only three days before it was scheduled to take place. On today's show, we're taking a look at the business of music festivals in Missouri. At their core, they all share one thing, ambitious entrepreneurs looking to harness their growing popularity and make money. But in the race to become the Coachella of the Midwest, overspending or underplanning can lead to catastrophe. In this episode of Speaking Startup, we'll take a deeper look at some of the failed music festivals in Missouri's recent and more distant history. Quick heads up, we've added some music and sound that were not recorded at these events to set the scene. We'll also talk to Lufest founder Brian Cohen about why festivals fail. Charlie Green from Borda Productions will round out the show to discuss how his company operates not one but two annual multi-day festivals near the Kansas City area. Let's Speak Startup. Every year in Sedalia, smiling families stroll around buying funnel cakes and petting barn animals at Missouri State Fair. The summer of 1974 looked a little different. In 1974, Missouri's Woodstock arrived near a hog farm on the state fairgrounds in Sedalia. A state senate report said the fairgrounds were overrun by gangs of bikers and drug pushers. Photos of the event show crowds of long-haired, free-loving young people descending on the town for the Ozark Music Festival. There seemed to be nothing anybody could do about it. Ozark Fest was promoted by a Kansas City company called Music Production Incorporated. The promoters told town officials in Sedalia to expect no more than 50,000 people. The event even had a planned Sunday morning worship service for what organizers described as a bluegrass festival. However, the lineup boasted iconic rock acts like Aerosmith... Bruce Springsteen, the Eagles, and Leonard Skinner. With acts like these meeting together at the same festival, it was bound to bring a different audience than what Sedalia was used to. According to KCUR, an estimated 350,000 people, 16 times the population of Sedalia, showed up for the concert. The Missouri Senate's report described the event as a, quote, disaster. The report even stated that, quote, the scene on the grounds at Sedalia made the degradation of Sodom and Gomorrah appear to be rather mild. Recounting the event in shocking detail, the investigators described public sex, rampant drug use, violence, and property damage. Starving attendees even raided nearby farms, slaughtered animals, and damaged farmland. After the concertgoers cleared out, the investigation that followed concluded that the town and the surrounding area suffered immense financial repercussions. According to the Senate report, thousands of people were hospitalized, and one person even died of an overdose. The Ozark Music Festival became infamous and will forever be marked by the mismanagement of the limited resources. In the end, Sedalia was completely blindsided by the counterculture. 
First, we speak with Brian Cohen, the founder of the St. Louis-based music festival, Lufest. Cohen founded the event back in 2010 and witnessed the festival's many successful runs. In 2018, however, Lufest was canceled last minute, allegedly because of unpaid bills, trouble with contractors, and not enough infrastructure. So, Suman, what did you and Cohen speak about? Well, Cohen moved to Michigan in 2016, but he had a lot to say about Lufest's more successful days. We spoke about what's at stake when you organize any music festival and how you can make it work. Could you just tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what got you started back in the day with Lufest in 2010? And, you know, what about the music festival industry in general and why St. Louis? Uh-huh. Um, well, I moved to St. Louis in 2004. Um, I was teaching documentary film at uh, Washington University. And in 2009, it just felt like I needed uh, a little something different to do. Um, I wasn't necessarily interested in changing careers, but I wanted a new project to take on. Um, and for some reason, starting a music festival was, was what came to mind. Um, and so I, I launched the idea in 2009, launched the process, um, and followed really the, the same process that I do when I was producing films. Um, you have an idea, um, and then you surround yourself with a team who's expert at executing different parts, whether it's a videographer or lighting tech or whatever it might be. Um, so I just applied that format to producing a music festival. Um, launched the first event in 2010. Um, didn't screw it up too badly, um, and so it was. We were we were off and running from there. Right. And like in general, you know, how is revenue, <clears throat> excuse me, revenue generated for a music festival, and and what are sort of uh, some you know just fundamentals to staying profitable? Yeah, revenue models are are different depending upon the event. But for a for a ticketed event like a, a music festival, I think they're they're pretty standard. Um, the first is the tickets themselves. That's almost always the, the top revenue generator. Um, and then you have sponsorship. Um, which is usually a second. Um, and then you have ancillary sales like beer and merch and um, uh, um, licenses that you sell to food vendors to come in and, and uh, be a part of the food court and things like that. So I would say those are the three top lines. Um, I think some festivals are able to get some city support um, if it's seen as a, a real kind of plus for the city or something that will will be a real economic driver. Um, I never went to St. Louis City for that support because I just thought, um, you know, it, this was a for-profit event. It should stand on its own, and I didn't want to take uh, tax dollars to, to help support it. Um, and luckily, we were able to to keep it going for as long as I did. I, I exited in 2015, yeah. um, and, and we had a good run up until 15. It's, it's hit kind of a, a rocky patch now. Um, uh, but that was that that came after my my involvement right and so I, I wanted to ask you about uh, you know what music festivals provide for their surrounding communities in your opinion how did Lufest impact uh, like the city of st. Louis while you know especially while it was doing well for all these years yeah I think it you know I don't want to overstate the impact um, but but I think it had a significant impact I think um, St. Louis in 2009 was still seen as a flyover city in terms of the music scene. Um, I think a lot of promoters and managers were skipping it on their tours. Um, establishing a, a successful um, large-scale music festival and bringing those those managers and agents through the festival, um, let them see the community, let them see that there was support for music on a larger scale, 
Um, and I think since then we've seen tours wrapping St. Louis into their schedules much more often. Um, and I would like to think that, that we had some part in that. Um, I think in general the city's been doing better over the last few years, so that helps as well. Um, there's a terrific food scene. There's there's all kinds of cultural things that are that are making the city pop right now. Um, those help. Um, and then there's just the direct economic impact um, with with tens of thousands of people coming in from out of town. They're spending money on hotels, restaurants, transportation, that sort of thing. So there's a, a significant uh, kind of influx in, in cash that, that follows an event like this. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was, um, I, I think, uh, probably things that, that most heavily contributed to St. Louis, at least in an economic sense. And then there's just, the, I think, the personal pride uh, that the city felt around this event. Um, I, I think they felt it was theirs. It was in their backyard. It was very St. Louis-centric. We always made, made sure to include local bands to, to prop them up. Um, put them on the same stage as, as big touring bands. Um, we always had terrific food vendors, you know, typically brick and mortars, people who made a commitment in the community and, you know, open stores, uh, open storefronts. Um, also had food trucks as well. They, they, they also support the community, but we, we didn't include kind of the, the fair type mm-hmm. food. Uh, we wanted to highlight the, the really the interesting restaurants that were doing, uh, doing good work in St. Louis. Um, so I think all those things just added to, to kind of a, an ownership of the event and a pride that, that something like this was happening uh, in, in, in our backyard. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what were some of the most defining moments of the festival, would you say? Um, I think one of the most defining moments was just getting that first lineup on the stage and off um, when the, the final headliner of 2010 took the stage um she and it was she and him um i I think for me that was a defining moment because we had successfully completed our first event um we had made it with no no huge uh issues no problems no um things to apologize you know in terms of acts maybe not showing up or things like that so for me personally that was a big deal and i think probably for the community and maybe the stakeholders as well because it showed even though I was a first-time promoter, I had no experience in this space. I could still, you know, shepherd this thing to a to a successful conclusion in year one. Um, and then I think the next big milestone was probably booking the Flaming Lips in mm-hmm. 2012. I think that again told the community that this thing is growing. We're now booking significant bands. Um, it, it meant that we had significant buy-in from the community in terms of uh, ticket buyers and sponsors. Um, and I think that's when the industry really started to, to look at this more closely. Um, and, in fact, that's when the, the, the sponsorship with C3, um, I think, kind of uh, got some footing because we were seen as, as a significant event. Right. And so I wanted to also ask you about uh, sort of when you left Lufest and, you know, what, what happened afterwards. Um, so I guess, you know, why did you leave? And then, you know, were there any signs that you saw that might have pointed to, uh, you know, what happened in 2018 with the cancellation? Or, you know, were there any troubling signs um, that you saw? Well, I left in, at the end of 2015 because I, I just had a, another terrific opportunity to start a new festival. Um, mm-hmm. And that was called Murmuration. That was um, right. produced with the, uh, the Cortex District, um, you know, in Midtown. Um, so I felt if I was going to, to really make murmuration successful, I needed to exit 
move fast and really be able to focus my full energy um, and not have one foot in each of those events. Um, and I passed it off to a group that, that I thought would continue it um, and, and keep it going. Um, in terms of the warning signs, you know, festivals, you know, ebb and flow, their fortunes um, based on the weather, based on the lineup. You know, you're never sure about ticket sales. You're never sure about sponsorship. So those, those revenue lines um, are fluid. And if you have a down year, um, if weather's not your friend one year or for some reason the lineup doesn't resonate with your, your fan base, um, then you can, you can find yourself in a hole um, that you hopefully dig out that next year. Um, my motto was always never to advance to a, ne- to a, a next year until the, the previous year was fully paid. I think, um, you know, looking, looking at the news around 2018, that, that seems to be a big theme, that there was debt that, that couldn't be serviced and um, it overcame the festival. I don't have any insight um, into Lufest after 2015. Right. Um, so I don't know for sure about that, but I think just being a good steward of a of a big public event, one in which there's a significant public trust put in you to to not screw it up, like I said at the beginning, um, you know, you got to just handle it. You got to be have your hands around the finances and not bite off more than than you can handle. Um, so that was the model I took um, to, to to find out more about eighteen. I think you need to talk to the the, the guys who are behind it. And um, lastly, I wanted to ask you, you know, at any level, what kind of advice would you have for an entrepreneur, you know, who wants to get into the festival industry? Um, I I wouldn't want to discourage that person because, uh, you know, if if I had been significantly, significant or sufficiently discouraged, I wouldn't have started Lufus, and I think that would have would have not been a good thing. Um, but I, I would just stress how difficult it is, um, how um, challenging it is to make all those pieces work. There's hundreds of moving parts, um, and you really have to have a handle on all of it and understand how it all fits together. And if something starts to slip away, you've really got to be able to pull it back in and, and keep the whole thing on the tracks. Uh, because if you don't, it can slip away very, very quickly. Um, if you start to lose trust, um, that can be a, you know, a, um, a real killer. Um, and I think that's, talking about the themes of 2018, I think that's what began the slide. Um, I think people started to distrust, um, you know, the information that was coming out, and that just cascaded into, into a situation that was untenable. Um, um, well, I think that's it for now. Thank you so much for talking with me, and um, I'm, I'm glad we got to finally connect. I really appreciate it. Okay. Very good. Thanks a lot. Take care. Next, we travel across the state from St. Louis to the Kansas City area for our final interview where Elliot spoke with the representative from Borda Productions. Elliot, what should the audience know about Borda before we get into the interview? Borda Productions is a family-owned and operated company that specializes in organizing events like these. The key to their success, they say, is steady growth and not overspending or overplanning. They started putting on one-off concerts and New Year's Eve parties and eventually moved into the music festival space. Now they run two large camping festivals in beautiful Lacine, Kansas, Dance Festopia and Tumbleweed. Sounds like an interesting company, Elliot. Who did you talk to and what did you learn? I spoke with marketing manager Charlie Green about the company's history, their revenue and growth model, and the most important things festival organizers need to prioritize to avoid catastrophe. Check it out. All right, I am here with Charlie Green, the marketing manager at Border Productions. Charlie, thanks for joining the show. 
Yes, thank you for having me. Can we start off with sort of a history of Borda, sort of a history of the company, and sort of discussing what about the music festival industry attracted company founders? So Borda Productions was um, established in 2007. The company was started by uh, two brothers, and they started doing uh, New Year's Eve parties, and then they trans- kind of transformed into um, putting off what we call one-off shows. Um, after kind of doing the New Year's Eve parties and concerts for a while, they transitioned into um, music festivals. While still doing um, the New Year's Eve parties and concerts, uh, they started Dance Festopia. And the idea was to just, you know, start off small. Um, and what really makes Dance Festopia special is um, that it is one of the last independently owned family operated music festivals because of that we are really able to take all of the feedback from our fans you know what they love what they don't like and really pivot to tailor to exactly what they want yeah and can you give us a brief description of borda's business model like how is revenue generated obviously with the festival this size there's a lot of expenses uh ticket sales it's 100 percent ticket sales you know there is a little bit of revenue that comes in with the one-off concerts and the New Year's Eve parties. Um, but really, it's ticket sales from the previous years. You know, as, as the festival continues to grow and sales continue to grow, um, that's how we come back year after year. I mean, obviously, the owners are very smart and strategic with their money and what abilities we have and making sure um, that, it, you know, what we spend is what we make kind of deal. You know, every every single ticket purchase makes a difference. Yeah, so you sort of take the money from previous years and sort of just dump it back into the festival to help it grow. Is yes. that a? Yes, it's every 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 year is a reinvestment right back into the festival. And since your revenue, like you said, is almost a hundred, if not a hundred percent, ticket sales, how can I sort of leave other companies that maybe don't have as much traction as you, sort of in a bind, sort of make them sort of vulnerable in this industry? if maybe say that they don't sell as many tickets as they expect? When Dance Festopia started, it was it was only a thousand-person festival, if that. And so it's really just being able to understand how much you have to spend versus how much you want to spend. Big thing is, you know, if you're kind of getting in this, you know, if you overspend, that's going to be the end of your festival. So it's understanding and keeping yourself in reality checks of, okay, we had a thousand people this year. Let's expect maybe 2,000, um, where, you know, sometimes people might be really optimistic and say, we're going to have 5,000 people. And so they spend a lot more money thinking that they're going to be, you know, doubling, tripling, quadrupling their attendance when um, if you just kind of take it year by year and grow as and invest as the festival grows, I think that's probably, you know, the smartest strategic move you can do. Yeah, and when you're looking at how you're going to spend your money and how much money you're going to spend, what are the essential elements of a music festival from the organizer's perspective? Well, obviously the most important aspect of any festival is safety. So you want to make sure that you're investing in security um, and as well as safety for the guests. So, you know, making sure the infrastructure is safe, you have water stations. And then the big second, you know, big investment is experience. And so that could be even, you know, art installations or, and then obviously a very large expense is the experience of the artist spending money on having, you know, strong enough talent. There's a lot of little things that go into it too. Um, Venue maintenance, you know, keeping the facility up year to year. And then another big expense would just be marketing. So making sure that you are marketing your festival to the right people so that they come. Because obviously if they don't know about the festival, they're not, you're not going to get that ticket sale. So it's making sure that you're strategic with your marketing dollars and getting them to the door. 
Awesome. So we've talked a little bit about the music festival. I'd like to sort of expand it to the overall community. Can you sort of tell our audience how a successful music festival like Dance Festopia can sort of impact the surrounding community, especially from a business perspective, especially if there's small business vendors and things like that? So this will be our second year at our new location um, in Lafine, Kansas. And we work very closely with the Lafine you know, City Commission um, because there are a lot of local businesses and we have seen Last year being our first year, a lot of the local businesses, what we heard back is how, you know, we heard with Dance Fest, how all of the attendees after the festival went into town, went all to the local, you know, breakfast spots, coffee shops, all of the mom and pop kind of shops and gave them, you know, really good business and really courteous um, to the community. And, you know, and, and all the hotels in the area always sell out now on our two festival weekends. So we're giving them that business. Um, and it's just bringing a lot of people to Lacine that maybe previously wouldn't have been there. And so, you know, we work with, you know, all the local businesses as close as we can. We give them, um, you know, half-off vending spots at our festival so then they can, you know, come to our festival and reach new audiences. So it's a, it's a, it's, so it's a positive relationship rather than we're a nuisance for the two weekends. Awesome. My last question, since this is an entrepreneurship podcast, I'd like to sort of ask you about what the most important advice you could give to an entrepreneur, someone that's looking to start their own festival, someone that's looking to follow in the footsteps of a company like Borda? You know, sur- surround yourself with people that are like-minded um, and that have the same passion and drive. And it's not a bad thing if you start small. You know, dance has taken some time to grow, and it continues to grow. And if you, if you start small and cross your T's and dot your I's and take it year after year, um, I think you can be successful. Just don't, don't be discouraged if it starts out smaller than you wish because it'll only continue to grow. Thank you very much. That's all the questions I have. Have a great day. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Have a great day. We talked about what happens when music festivals fail because of too large an audience, like Ozark Fest, but when no one turns up, the results can be shocking. That's what happened with Boonforia, a multi-day event in April 2018 that promised to be Mid-Missouri's first electronic music festival. Instead, concertgoers and vendors who attended Boonforia were left disappointed. Boonforia Flyers boasted two stages, VIP lounges, a silent disco, hypnotic gardens of dazzling dancing lights, and over 15 electronic artists that would play over three days. Two weeks before the festival, organizers said on Facebook that over 1,000 people had bought tickets in advance. Eventgoers are upset with the Boonforia event, which they are calling a massive scam. I tried, I went and uh, camped, so I set up camp, and I walked up to the hill, no one was there. A headline in the Columbia, Missouri, and read, For both vendors and attendees, Boonforia was a waste of time and money. Come opening night, Mark Singleton, who brought a concession stand to the festival, told the newspaper no more than 50 to 75 people showed up. A single stage, a handful of attendees, and an empty patch of grass were what greeted dozens of vendors who came out to feed, entertain, and sell artwork to what was supposed to be over 1,000 concertgoers. The dazzling dancing lights were nowhere to be seen. Vendors and artists at Boonforia say they were never paid for their services. Boonforia Scam, a Facebook group for people who say they were stiffed by organizers, has 60 members. Some of the group's members say Boonforia's organizers lied about the event's turnout, while others say the whole weekend was an out-and-out fraud. Sean Crowley wrote on the Facebook page last year, the second the organizers decided not to tell vendors and artists the actual turnout, it became fraud. The second they realized that they didn't have the infrastructure promised and they weren't going to tell ticket holders, it became fraud. 
Mid-Missouri electronic music fans might think twice before they line up for a three-day pass next time. Now, let's talk about important numbers and entrepreneurship news in this week's edition of Can I Get Your Digits? Elliot, can I get those digits? Yes, you can. My digit is 32 million. That's the number of people in the U.S. that go to at least one music festival a year, according to Billboard Online. That's bigger than the state of Texas. Of that group, 14.7 million belong to the millennial generation. This demonstrates young people's willingness to spend money on experiences rather than material items. Suman, let me get those digits. Sure thing. My number is 300,000. That's how many Lollapalooza tickets were sold in Brazil in 2018, making it among the highest grossing music festivals anywhere in the world last year, according to Statista. Joe, can I get those digits? Yep. My digits are 78%, as in hardcore music festival fans spend 78% more on music festival tickets than average music festival goers. Not only do Super Music Fest fans attend more music festivals than regular fans overall, but they spend 78% more on a music festival ticket than casual music fest goers who usually cough up the dough just once a year. This has been Speaking Startup from Missouri Business Alert. With Suman Naishadam and Joe Cease, I'm Elliot Bowman. Thanks for listening and speak to you next time.